I, I, I don't really watch these press conferences. I don't really, to me, it's, uh, if, if you're a macro investor and you're trading off these things, of course, you need to, you need to know this sort of stuff. If you're investing in stocks and you're trying to look for out of favor stocks and you're putting your valuations in, none of this stuff really matters. Yeah. Like it doesn't really matter. And my view is that the Fed has done enough. My view is that deep down, the Fed probably thinks it's done enough. Hello, a warm welcome to What's Not Priced In. I'm back from London. It's good to be back. Good to be joined with the esteemed Greg Canavan. Greg, how are you? We're very well. Thanks, Kirill. And good to have you back in the driver's seat, mate. I was uh, struggling for the past <laughs> few weeks without you. So uh, welcome back, mate. Okay. Well, you didn't, you didn't have to be so kind, but um, look, we've got a little bit of a different setup. So I think we'll just go straight into it. And obviously we're recording this when just November has just started. So I thought it would be nice to sort of look back on what October was, and it was uh, pretty rough. I think um, that journalists were sort of quick to say that the SX200 entered a technical correction last month. Uh, I think the S&P 500 did too. Uh, and I think uh, in October alone, I think the SX200 sort of fell about 3.6%. And I think since early February, the index is down about 8.5%. And it's actually down 9.5% since August 2021. So October wasn't great, but neither have been the last few years. So I guess the question is, is why? What's happening? Uh, yeah, good question. Uh, so as you said, pretty rough October following a, a pretty rough September as well. And it goes back to, um, I, th I think what we've been talking about for some time is that this bear market that you know effectively started uh, in 2022 uh, after the various global indices peaked in November of 2021 isn't necessarily over. And we had a, a, a long period throughout 2023 where stocks, um, well, they bottomed in late 2022 and the, the rally was was underway for some time in 2023. Uh, and that was a, a very much a momentum rally. It was built around the NVIDIA story, the AI story, uh, and and the, the narrative around the Magnificent Seven, the seven stocks that were driving uh, that was driving that that whole um, what we called the bear market rally, and I remember um, when one of these episodes around about the peak or maybe just nearing the peak, we said that momentum is starting to break down, and we were pointing out the fact that those tech stocks there was divergences in the momentum and the price, and and that was the peak in the market. So since that peak in July, prices have, have fallen quite heavily. So I thought what we could do for this episode is look at some of the, the top and worst performers uh, for October uh, and also talk about uh, some of the, uh, well, I guess the one driving force behind that weakness is really uh, the big pickup in, in bond yields. And we've been speaking about uh, bond yields uh, on and off for the past couple of months. Uh, and I've been uh, sticking my neck out and saying that I think bonds are a good contrarian buy here. And we've got a contrarian magazine indicator to look at this week that I didn't like the look of at all. Um, but I think in the interest of uh, disclosure, we should be showing uh, exactly. our viewers and, and listeners what that con contrary uh, indicator shows. And it's uh, not good for my bond call. Um, but maybe, Kira, what we could do is just have a quick look at uh, some of the major uh, what do you call it? Major indices uh, for um, and and just sort of give viewers a bit of a sense of um, where where we're at in this cycle because I think 
what we said at the end of September after the market had sold off quite heavily was that the markets are ready for uh, a bounce, but we're not near a bottom uh, yet. And it turned out to be that way. The markets did bounce. They rallied back uh, up to clear the oversold condition and then the selling happened again and we've seen that big sell-off occur in October. So with that said, it might be worth just going through a couple of these charts to let viewers know where we're at in that discussion. So here we've got the S&P 500. Uh, and as I pointed out um, in last week's episode, this is a clear uh, downward trend that has developed. Now, the correct interpretation of a bear market, which is a, a 20% uh, decline from the peak, uh, obviously not in effect yet. And I think you said we're not even down 10%, so not in correction mode. But this is a clear indication of a downward trending market. Uh, and in my view, probably only a matter of time before it develops into a correction and then into a bear market. Um, so if I just put on the uh, a, a short-term momentum indicator, the RSI, here at uh, the end of October, we went into deeply oversold uh, condition. And often when you get down to that level, that's when markets tend to put in a bounce. Now, the financial pages will put in all sorts of reasons as to why that bounce is happening. But effectively, it's a, it's a technical condition uh, that needs to be cleared. And in the S&P 500, this is on the way to being cleared. One of the things I want to point out it got really oversold, uh, sorry, overbought here. This is in this in this rally throughout um, the first half of 2023, and it peaked in late July. Bear markets tend to be characterized by momentum that doesn't quite get into the overbought level. So here was quite unusual, and uh, that was, I think, more in relation to this whole AI craze where people were piling into uh, the tech stocks, and that produced these really uh, over overbought conditions here, but the last couple of rallies you've seen, and as I pointed out, the momentum is waning in terms of we're making uh, lower highs and lower lows, and you're not seeing the momentum get into overbought conditions here. So I wouldn't be surprised if this rally it might take us up to these moving averages in the same way as it did in early October, but you're not going to see. I don't think you're going to see the momentum uh, get back into these overbought areas. And that's characteristic of, of more of a bearish trend. So I'll just quickly go through a couple of these other charts to show you a similar, a similar picture. You've got uh, the momentum in uh, RSI here, not quite at these levels yet, so it could have a few more days into it. But essentially the NASDAQ is similar to the S&P 500, similar type of structure here. Moving averages are about to cross to the downside. Um, so this is developing, continues to develop into a in, a in a bearish trend. Dow Jones Industrials, similar thing here. We're just rallying from oversold conditions, uh, and once that's cleared, I think you'll see the selling return. And I just threw in the Dow Jones Transports. So uh, the industrials and transports are often looked at together, um, and the fact that the transports look worse than the the industrials, the industrials tend to reflect the production of an economy and the transports reflect the distribution of that production through the economy. So um, airlines, railways, that sort of stuff. The fact that this has, has deteriorated more so than the industrials um, in very 
uh, broad terms suggests that there could be inventory starting to build up because the transports are suggesting that there's less need for movement of goods throughout the economy. Um, so this is, a, a, I guess, a just a potential warning sign that the economy is slowing um, as per the discussion we had in, in last week's episode, slowing more so than what uh, many might expect. But again, this got to a very oversold level here at the end of October, and we're just bouncing from that level. Another chart that shows the deterioration in the US economy, more so than the, the major uh, averages, this is the iShares Russell 2000 ETF. Uh, and this reflects, um, I guess, more, the, it's, it's really a small cap index, but it also reflects more so what's happening in the US economy rather than, say, the global economy where a lot of the tech stocks are exposed to uh, international sales as well as US sales. So this is um, potentially breaking down through this uh, level of support here. It, it, it did so briefly back in June 22, rallied from that level. Also, the lows from October 2022 broke through there, rallied back up, but it's really failed to, to move away from that level uh, in the same way that, say, the NASDAQ or the, the larger indices, the S&P 500 has, and it's turned back down and broken through that level. Now, if that's a decisive breakthrough, which it quite possibly is, um, you know, that's a suggestion this, this bear market uh, for US stocks is is entering a, entering another phase. So that's just worth keeping an eye on. Uh, and just a couple of other charts uh, to run through on the US side of things. This is the um, this is the TIPS index. So this is what uh, the inverse of the real interest rate. So obviously real interest rates are still quite high in the US, which is effectively what's putting pressure on the US economy and on uh, asset prices. Uh, and this is the long-term bond ETF, uh, which has also been the source of lots of stress for the market in general as bond yields um, as bond yields rise. And this is the price of the bond. So as bond yields rise, the price falls. falls uh, and we're not really seeing any um, any signs of a low there. We're getting a little bit of support here in the last couple of weeks, but there's no definitive signs of a low for bonds, which is going to keep. Um, pressure on the the main in, main indices and just going on to the Aussie market uh, I'll zoom in there this is the ASX 200 so it's broken down here it's rallied back into around these moving averages sold off quite sharply um, rallied yesterday we're recording this at uh, just after lunch on Thursday the 2nd of November and we're seeing a big rally in the market today uh, and and again that's just clearing that oversold condition so i don't think this is any reason to uh, expect a market bottom or anything like that um, it's really just a, a technical clearing the condition so we could today's um, move has been quite strong um, we're rallying back up into uh, potentially up into this area uh, before i think you'll see more selling again uh, and just to sort of look at the different sub indices Resources have been holding up really, really well, uh, and that really comes down to the fact that the iron ore price has been holding in, and the big iron ore miners are, are holding up that index as well. Uh, on the other side of the coin, you've got the banks that are starting to feel under some pressure now. This is the ASX 200 banking index. Again, just rebouncing up from oversold conditions here, uh, and the small ordinaries 
that's not a good sign for um, I guess the market in general if if the market is bottoming and you're going to see a, a turnaround in the market you do want to see some support coming in from the small caps and there's just no sign of that coming in as yet uh, and just to finish off on the Aussie market uh, as I said bonds are the bond funds breaking below the support level so my uh, call that bonds I think are a good buy um, obviously the, the timing's not right there which is fine um, when you take contrarian bets you're never going to get the timing right uh, and I still I, th- I still think that bonds at these levels uh, are going to be a good buying opportunity but clearly the, the momentum is to the downside and it's staying in these oversold levels without so much much of a bounce to even clear that so uh, clearly very negative sentiment towards bonds, lots of selling, um, and that really comes down to the concern over uh, over interest rates interest and over rates. the uh, likelihood that inflation is going to be more persistent. And while ever those um, discussions are being had, uh, bonds are going to struggle in that in that environment. Yeah. And I think we'll definitely get more into the bonds and the contrarian indicator and uh, the latest news and interest rates. But I thought we'd maybe continue talking about October and then maybe discuss some of the October's best performers and obviously October's worst performance. Clearly, there's more worse performance than there have been good ones. But maybe we can start off with index uh, sectors and stocks that have been doing well. And uh, you did say that gold stocks have held up pretty well last month. Yeah, well, the um, the best performers for the month of the uh, and I've just focused on the ASX two hundred to to keep keep it pretty tight. But the best performers have been the gold stocks, um, and that's an interesting uh, point to consider because gold was selling off quite sharply. And I might just uh, go back and and show you the, the the chart of it so you can get a a sense of when this happened. And we haven't talked about uh, the conflict in the Middle East. Uh, and it's just not something that I have any expertise in, not a geopolitical expert. Um, but gold has obviously responded uh, very, very well to that. Um, I think we've spoken before about the sensitivity of gold to real interest rates. And as bond yields and real interest rates started to rise, gold sold off here quite sharply. And it looked like it was heading back considerably lower because it had consolidated in these levels, it had broke down below these levels. Uh, and when when you get breakdowns like that, it suggests, you know, that upward trend is over for the time being and uh, there's probably more weakness ahead. But on uh, on the uh, around the 5th of October, gold bottomed and it, and it put in a, a good day here on the 6th of October. Now, if you remember, uh, the Hamas... Uh, uh, I, I guess attack on Israel occurred on the seventh of October, and on that day, gold rallied strongly and moved back above this consolidation um, area and has done really, really well. So, obviously, went into an overbought condition here, and we're sort of seeing a correction unfold now, which is completely, uh, you know, a technical correction, completely understandable given the over overbought condition here. But it's interesting because gold has really defied the move in real interest rates. So. The question you've got to ask if you're a gold uh, investor is, is this an indication purely of geopolitical uh, hedging? So, and, and to me, it looks that way. Um, gold basically turned around the day before uh, the attack happened uh, and has, has remained pretty strong since. Um, so that's really, 
the fact that gold has acted as a defensive hedge against geopolitical tensions, whereas bonds haven't, have probably encouraged more funds to come into into the gold market. Um, but it is it's interesting to to sort of think, okay, is is gold purely responding to geopolitical tensions, or is gold starting to see the weakness in the U.S. economy that will result in lower real yield, real bond yields uh, in the months ahead? And you were either still in London or on a flight back last week, Kirill. But we, in in this podcast, I uh, showed uh, Lacey Hunt's latest research and outlined uh, in in a fair bit of detail using Lacey's meticulous research that a number of indicators showed that the US economy is only a matter of time away from uh, falling into recession. And there's a couple of other charts that I've I've got later just to to back that up. Um, But I wonder whether uh, gold is, is, as I said, purely reflecting geopolitical tensions or whether it is starting to move ahead of uh, potential moves in the U.S. economy, potential change in tone from the Fed. Um, you know, we, we we just saw overnight the Fed has um, remained on hold again uh, while maintaining the option or the bias that it will continue to tighten uh, monetary policy purely because it needs to show the market that it remains uh, remains hawkish. It doesn't want to give any indication that it's ready to to cut interest rates. So I just I'm interested to see how gold is going to to fare over the next couple of weeks, especially if we see. And look, I don't think this is uh, this is likely, unfortunately. Especially if we see uh, a decline uh, in in tensions in the Middle East, whether that results in in another sort of you know leg down for gold, or whether it sort of holds above these moving averages here and stays quite strong. And just on the um, on the on the gold price in Aussie dollars. Um, gold broke out to a new all-time high. Now, one of the things with Aussie dollar gold, it tends to be a leading indicator for US dollar gold, not all the time, but the fact that this has been in this broad upward trend for so long, um, it broke out to new highs here, corrected back down to to test that those uh, that breakout level, and it's now gone on to new all-time highs. That's a really encouraging sign for gold uh, in my opinion for 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 longer term uh growth so going back to your uh earlier point about the best performers the best performers uh in the gold um space uh, sorry in the a6200 for the month were silver lake resources up 26 and a half percent admittedly um coming after a horrendous mm-hmm. couple of months so it's bounced quite nicely uh, Gold Road Resources up eighteen and a half percent, which has had a, it's a nice month and up around all time highs. Uh, Romelius Resources up eighteen percent. It's had a really good couple of months. Uh, Capricorn Metals, uh, nice little rally from from um, recent lows, I guess. And uh, Regis Resources, which has you know had another rough couple of months so it's it's bouncing from those oversold levels um but it just goes to show that the other gold player here um northern star resources mm-hmm. um just goes to show that gold has been the one hedge uh that has been um you know the opposite of the rest of the market for the month and that's why you've seen mostly gold stocks do quite well and on the other side of the coin you've got Liontown Resources, I guess that um, really had to do with the uh, corporate activity 
in in uh, in Liontown, that's down forty five percent for the month. Um, Credit Corp down thirty five percent of the month. It come out with a, I guess, a profit warning and a, a an asset write down based on some debt. And and Credit Corp is a debt collection company. Uh, it bought a bunch of debt from. Uh, I'm not exactly sure if they were U.S. banks or U.S. utilities, but they were, they're seeing more stress and more debt repayments going delinquent in the U.S., which means people are just not paying it anymore, yeah. um, which means they're, uh, they just don't have the funds for it. They might have lost their jobs. Uh, and the, the ledger of books that they've bought are just not going to deliver the returns that they expected when they bought those. So they've had to write those down. So that's another indication that there's more stress uh, at the lower end of the of the US economy, you know, where people do get into uh, in, into debt problems, the, the, the stress is just starting to build. And often these stresses start at the periphery and move into the core. Uh, and while interest rates remain as high as they are, I think that movement from the periphery to the core will continue. So that was, uh, that was interesting. Another one here, uh, Siona Mining, uh, which I th- I'm pretty sure is a lithium miner. Yep. Um, Magellan Financial really just ongoing woes of uh, funds flow flowing out. That was down 27%. And uh, IGO, um, which is another lithium lithium play. Actually, you, you probably follow lithium more than I do, mate. What's, um, what, what's been driving that uh, decline in the lithium market? Is it just the lack of liquidity in the market where um, I guess you could say investors are just getting out and the lithium price is falling uh, because on the other side of the coin, there's a bit of a land grab going on in Western Australia for lithium too, isn't there? Yeah, I think, yeah, it's, it's a bit of an interesting one because there are definitely some lithium stocks that were once popular getting absolutely smashed last month and pretty much this whole year, I think miners like say on a mining or Lake resource, I think Lake resources is down probably over 90% over the last 12 months. It's been, totally created but there are still some stocks that have been skyrocketing th- this year and i think I've, I've written about this i think yesterday uh like wildcat resources azure minerals uh but those ones yeah like you said they've sort of been the ones that have been the focus of takeover targets so i think investors are sort of focusing on quality assets that are probably in australia western australia good jurisdictions that are probably going to be snapped up by billionaires or like something like mineral resources or sqm or albemol we're sort of trying to maybe buy quality assets on the cheap right now but there's definitely um people like lion town or igo i think igo released its quarterly report a few days ago and it did say that prices are very soft at the moment they probably will continue to be soft for a while yet in the in the short term and i think um yeah igo sort of hinted that they now have surplus volumes in their production and uh, i think they sort of said that yeah they now have to manage surplus volumes to minimize any impact to shareholders and i think they're sort of maybe um predicting uh that uh their spodumen sales will likely be lower than production so i think there's i guess it comes back to um uh to what we talk about uh the theme of this podcast is uh what's priced in and what's not priced in and often with those highly speculative sectors where a lot of capital flows in on the expectation that it's a new era, there's going to be a billion EVs on the road in a few years and they're all going to need lithium. Um, 
that all gets priced in and more. So when a company comes out with a bit more of a realistic update, yeah. the, the share price just gets smashed because it wasn't what people are expecting. And, and when that hype has, has retreated from the market, and now I think, you know, from a very superficial uh, analysis, I think the market is just becoming more selective. So yeah. it's where the, uh, you know, the, the companies that might have the land that's ripe for consolidation because it sits next to a bigger player's uh, tenements, they're the ones that are in demand. But uh, your lake resources, for example, that there, there must be something, there must be a low quality resource that might have, might have just been purely hyped up and everyone jumped on board because everyone was jumping on board without having a fundamental driver of that price. Mm. And now we're getting to a point where interest rates are proving, uh, you know, quite uh, difficult for liquidity conditions at the smaller end. Uh, And you're starting to see that real divergence between uh, assets with a bit of quality uh, versus assets that, you know, um, might be in the middle of nowhere, might need a huge amount of uh, capital to develop uh, and might not be seen to have the management teams to to do the job on that. So, um, yeah, clearly a, a rough couple of months for, for lithium and, uh, and and the prices of all these things have come back significantly as well. I guess well. you could say it's been a rough, rough maybe 12 or even more months for some of those stocks like, Ray, like Reese's. I think it's been on a steady trajectory downwards. I think, yeah, like I said, over 90% down. Uh, but it's interesting because I think um, even the big producers, that's sort of like the new big producer in Australia, Pilbara Minerals, it's actually now the most shorted stock on the ASX. I think about 16% of its shares of free float are actually being held short, which is quite a massive total. And I think uh, in the top 10, there's also Core Lithium, which is sort of trying to be the new um, producer in, I think, Western Australia. And also I think Sayona Mining is also in the top 10 most shorted stocks. So I think the Pilbara one is is more interesting, but I think sort of suggests that the market thinks that the current valuation probably doesn't reflect the the reality of where lithium prices are heading, and maybe the market thinks of just overvalued. Absolutely, and look, you know, from my perspective, that is just I'm a uh, a contrarian investor. Uh, I whenever something is splashed across the the headlines, and even though it's been a rough time for lithium prices there's still a lot of interest and a lot of hype around the sector and to me uh using purely those contrarian indicators um to me it's not a buy just because there's still too much interest still too much hype still too much belief in the fact that um the demand side is going to go for for you know for years and years and years which it will and i think it might have been something you wrote uh yesterday that um often everyone thinks about the demand but doesn't consider the supply and there's a lot of supply coming online in the years to come in the in the lithium space so um that's something that people should consider i'll just point out that if uh if people are listening and haven't signed up to the fat tail daily email um it's something that we send out as a company every day um it's a new thing we've just started this week it's called fat tail daily there should be a link in the um in the in the notes to uh to this podcast or or youtube episode uh so click on that you can sign up for free uh and you can get uh, a daily insight that tries to offer you something that isn't uh popular in the market uh and we try to talk about things that the rest of the market isn't so um if you haven't signed up to it uh feel free to do so it's free and uh hopefully it gives you some insights each day so very good summary very good summary well, I think maybe now we could maybe briefly talk about the biggest stories of this week, not not last month. Obviously, U.S. Fed officials 
unanimously voted to keep rates steady. And I think that was, what's interesting is that now it's the second meeting in a row and that's the longest intermission since March, 2022. So they haven't held rates steady for two meetings since March, 2022, which is quite a long time ago. Which suggests they've done enough and they're not going (laughs) to, they're not going to tighten, tighten anymore. That's my view anyway. And I think what's interesting for me is that, um, yeah, investing is hard as it is, but I think nowadays uh, people are sort of trying to get new skills. I think people try to psychoanalyze the Fed and try to psychoanalyze the comments from Jerome Powell and the sort of wake up early in the morning and see what he has to say and sort of uh, try to guess what he was saying. Uh, there was an interesting comment from uh, uh, Citadel Securities Global Head of Rates uh, Trading, and he said they want to maintain a hawkish facade while believing deep down that they're probably done enough. So. He's got some, uh, he's not only a great trader, he's also a great psychologist. He really knows well, what deep down. I would say, I would say that's a fair comment, but you know what? I would also say he didn't need to get up or stay up because he's probably in the US or didn't even need to watch the yeah. press conference to know that. I, I, I don't really watch these press conferences. Yeah. I don't really, to me, it's, uh, if, if you're a macro investor and you're trading off these things, of course, you need to, you need to know this sort of stuff. If you're investing in stocks and you're trying to look for out of favor stocks and you're yeah. putting your valuations in, none of this stuff really matters. Yeah. Like it doesn't really matter. And my view is that the Fed has done enough. My view is that deep down, the Fed probably thinks it's done enough, <laughs> but it's trying to tell the market, hey, um, we're still we're still tough on inflation because what it, yeah. I think what a lot of people don't realize is, is that the Fed is is in many ways powerless but also very um powerful so they're powerless in the way in in that if the market doesn't believe them yeah they've got no they've got no real power to control interest rates when the market believes them it does all the tightening for them and that's what's happened recently the market is fine in the last probably three or four months the market has finally understood jay powell's uh determination to keep rates higher for longer for many, many months at the start of the year, they were saying, look, economy's going to slow, things are going to turn around, rates are going to cut, and they're pricing in rate cuts. When you price in rate cuts, you price in uh, uh, easier financial conditions. So j squeezed all that out of the market now, and they've got to the point where, yes, they've believed him. So he can't turn around now and say, actually, the markets, the economy is slowing a little bit. There's some indications there that we're just going to go on hold now because then the, the market will turn around and say, they're on hold, they're going to cut soon and bang, they'll be uh, pricing easing into the into the, fu- uh, the the futures, the interest rate futures. So he has to stay, has to have the the intention that he's telling the market, we will raise rates if X, Y, and Z happens. Um, and I think it's a similar thing in Australia. We've got a yeah. Reserve Bank uh, interest rate decision next week. Um, again, I just I don't think it's a it's a huge big deal. I mean, the market is pretty much fifty fifty mm-hmm. on it now. I don't think uh, the the RBA should be raising rates again. I think there's a very um, it's a very blunt tool. Yeah. So. At the moment, the RBA is inflicting quite a lot of pain uh, on on mortgage holders, um, and the that's not where the inflation is coming from. the inf- The inflation in the housing market is not coming from mortgage holders going crazy, borrowing huge amounts of money, bidding the market up. 
the inflation in the housing market is coming from a ridiculous government policy of running a hugely uh, stimulatory immigration program, yet interest rates are high and preventing home builders from creating the supply to meet that demand. It's insane. Um, so that's the problem. That's one problem. The other problem is you've got a government on state and federal level that's pumping huge amounts of money into infrastructure projects at the same time that the Reserve Bank is trying to slow the economy. So a lot of that spending is absorbing capital. It's absorbing labor resources in projects that have dubious cost-benefit uh, analysis done on them. So one good example is Snowy Hydro 2 project. Uh, it is blown out. It is probably going to come in at a final cost of above $20 billion. So at the moment, you've obviously got hundreds, potentially thousands of workers in and around that site trying to build uh, a big project that won't deliver until at least maybe 2028. Um, and the the productivity of that project relative to the money that it's gone into it is is also quite dubious. And then you can multiply that by a lot. You know, um, many of these uh, clean energy projects um, have dubious economic benefits. Um, even the transport, some of the transport projects, transport is uh, essential in a growing economy. Um, but a lot of these project prices, they're huge, they're astronomical. Um, governments are competing in the market for electricians, engineers, all that sort of stuff. So wages are going up. So it's no surprise that there's tightness in the in the labor market. It's putting up interest rates isn't going to stop the government spending money. Um, putting up interest rates is also going to put more money into the accounts of people that have accumulated their assets. So the people that have paid down their debt. So Typically, the baby boomer um, generation that has uh, seen their kids move on from school, they've paid off their mortgages and they're in the asset accumulation phase, they're looking at uh, bank interest rates. They're looking at um, uh, bank shares that are paying now you know, decent amounts of uh, interest. And, and when interest rates go up, uh, banks raise their uh, interest rates, so more money goes back into the banks and obviously their funding costs increase as well, so it's not all going to them. But there is another side of that equation for rising interest rates. It doesn't necessarily take, a, take money out of the economy. I mean, it takes money out on the margin, but there's people benefiting from that as well that is then going into creating additional demand for, for goods and services. So um, raising interest rates, I don't necessarily see how that is going to uh, achieve what the uh, what the the RBA thinks it's going to achieve, which is a, a better inflation outcome. A better inflation outcome would be achieved by a government that has a, a, a decent amount of economic, um, uh, sensible economic policy. And I just saw a headline today. Um, Treasurer Chalmers is talking about the energy transition needs more government intervention, not less, in order to achieve its goals. It's just so, so none of this stuff's going to go away. But a, an, an RBA trying to control inflation purely by that blunt instrument uh, is not going to do the job either. So, long winded way of saying, I don't think they should raise rates, yeah. uh, but I do think uh, the new governor is probably under significant pressure uh, to do it. So, um, yeah, who knows, mate?
Yeah, and it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't if matter. You, if you have a proper valuation process where you're looking at uh, looking at companies, valuing those companies, and you can buy those companies at below intrinsic value, these these panics that are, are going to be market panics that will uh, come about because of rising interest rates. Um, like a good example, we spoke a few, well, it was probably a month or two ago now about REITs being a really good contrarian opportunity. They, their share prices have continued to fall. And I recently added another uh, REIT into, into the portfolio that um, I run for subscribers. And just this week, I went through and updated all my valuations. I looked at the consensus forecasts. I looked at all the announcements that have come out in the last couple of months. None of these companies have been uh, uh, adversely affected in terms of announcing profit downgrades or anything like that. Sure, that could come. I'm not saying it, it won't. But the market has purely derated those companies on the prospect of higher bond yields and higher interest rates. Yeah. And if you put into your model a, 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 a through-the-cycle interest rate, these companies are very cheap. I'm not talking about putting in a really low interest rate to, to get a, a higher valuation. I'm just talking about, you know, so uh, I, I guess the, the, the upshot of this conversation is that Many interest rate sensitive stocks have been oversold to levels that I think are good long term value here. Um, if you think inflation is going to stay high and, and bond yields are going to go even lower from here, or sorry, higher from here, then maybe that's not the cause. The timing's wrong, but I think you know you're seeing a lot of good value uh, in the market because of that uh, very background. Yeah, and I think um, of of all the institutions, I think the IMF sort of. Uh backed up what you were saying in that it sort of noted that the the job of the Reserve Bank is going to be made harder by decisions from Commonwealth and state governments if they continue to sort of make uh, big expenditures. But the IMF did sort of come out, I think, uh, at the end of October with a re annual report on Australia. And it did sort of try to butt in and say that it does feel in its expect judgment that uh, the Reserve Bank should raise interest rates maybe at least once. And they did say that if the Commonwealth government or state governments combine to sort of uh, spend on big projects, the Reserve Bank may actually have to raise rates even further than that. So what do you make of that? Or do you well, think none no of this sense. matters? Yeah. It's just dumb. Like, yeah. Raising interest rates more to, to, to uh, stop a sector that has no sensitivity to rising interest rates, it's dumb. Like I just, yeah. and you know, I'm not sure, I guess people still listen to the IMF. I used to read the IMF many years ago when I was uh, young and first starting because I thought they were a prestigious organization. But um, I honestly don't even read that, don't even listen to that. And I don't think anyone should, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, that's the one takeaway. Well, I think what you were sort of saying that raising interest rates might not actually do what the, uh, the Reserve Bank thinks it does. The ABS released its latest living costs uh, index, I think, yeah, a few days ago. And it did say that despite uh, interest rates being held steady by the Reserve Bank for, I think, a few months now, mortgage interest charges had still risen about 9.3%. Uh, so uh, the ABS specifically said that even though interest rates haven't risen, people are still paying a lot more for their mortgages. And that's because you know uh, things are rolling over and uh, 
So they, yeah, those those low fixed rates are then rolling yeah, exactly. off into the into the higher higher variable rate, and that's going to continue to happen. I think we saw a big chunk of that occur in the September quarter. Yep. So that's probably moved through the, the starting to move through the system now. People and you know uh, would be starting to get their higher higher bills. So there is you know there's significant pain being felt. I've got a mortgage. I've got two kids in yep. school. You know it. And and maybe I've got a bias um, to this view because I'm you know particularly uh, Im- impacted by it. But um, I can tell you, uh, I'm not a source of inflation in the economy. <laughs> You're not buying anything. No, I'm a source of deflation in yeah. the economy, if anything. So, um, yeah, that's just that's just and and you know there is a I guess a risk of becoming anecdotal about. Uh, your your view of your view of the world, but uh, there is there is a there is a logic to it as well, and that yeah. logic is that if you have a um, a decent mortgage, you've got a couple of kids in yeah. in school, um, you don't have any disposable income. <laughs> <laughs> so if you don't have any disposable income, you can't really spend uh, you can't really spend um, o- o- overspend. And one other comment I would make, uh, just as an aside, it feels like. And this is a, this is one of the I guess problems with inflation. It feels like everyone thinks they have pricing power now, and you can just everywhere you go, people are just putting up prices because people are putting up prices. Mm-hmm. And my 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 concern is that um, if you don't get that uh, wash through in terms, of, if if the labor market doesn't stay strong, the economy is going to hit a wall at some point because everyone's putting up prices and everyone's paying those prices. But if we, if we don't get that follow through of uh, you know um, maintaining strong employment pressure uh, in, employment growth, then the economy is not going to be able to handle that. It's going to get to a point where people are just like, well, I can't, I can't, yeah. I can't do that. Um, so that's just something to keep in mind as well. So you haven't been splurging on anything? Uh, no, apart from my uh, my kids, um, she broke a tennis racket the other day. So. Uh, that's not a splurge. That's an annoyance. Like, thanks. Don't, don't crack your bloody tennis racket, kid. But anyway, well, I can. I, I've I've been there. I've broken a few tennis rackets. I'm not. I'm not saying I'm proud of it. I'm not. I'm not Nadal, but I've I've been there. And my my dad yeah. had to buy it as well, and he wasn't too happy. Uh, tennis is a frustrating sport. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think. Um, actually, I did see something that uh, maybe I thought I would get your take on. Um, and whether you think this is, has any significance or not, but um, there was a Bank of America analyst who sort of pointed out that in the coming weeks until the, the end of the year, the U.S. government is going to issue about $500 billion worth of bonds. And um, he was sort of asking, you know, um, buyers who are sort of already drowning in U.S. government bonds, you know, will they demand higher and higher yields to soak up this supply? And will that sort of percolate down to continued higher bond yields down the track? Do you think this uh, this matters at all? Is this something not being priced in by the market? Uh, I don't think so. I th- to me, bond yields, and and don't don't forget that the Fed has continued to run its quantitative tightening policy, so it is also throwing additional supply into the market. Um, but at the end of the day, the the uh, the bond the say the ten year bond yield is responding to ongoing strong nominal economic growth in the US and you could argue that it is actually priced better than what it 
sorry, mm. the bond yield is, is lower than what it should be given the really strong nominal growth you've seen in the US over the past year or so. Um, so yes, yeah, su- supply is is a part of the mix, but I don't think um, at the end of the day, e- economic um, purchases will respond to um, economic data rather than um, su- supply, especially for a big big economy like the US. I don't. I know there's a lot of negativity around the amount of supply and the amount of spending, and I get it, um, but I don't think that's an overall determinant of of where bond yields are. Shorter term, sure, it can affect sentiment and all that sort of stuff, but fundamentally, I don't think it drives uh, where the bond yield where the bond yield will be. That's driven by factors like economic growth, which is why if we do see a slowdown in the US economy, which I think we will. Uh, going into the end of this year, bond yield should come down. Yeah, and with the the uh, Tracy Lace, the the uh, Hoisington management in the episode that you had last week, did he sort of place a timeline when he thinks the US economy is going to slow down dramatically? No, not not specifically. I think it was more just um, you know these all these factors in history have yeah. when they have occurred, the US has been in recession. So the implication was that it's not too far away um, and I might just show a couple of um, charts to uh, continue on mm-hmm. or, or just to reiterate those points that uh, Lacey made um, so well I probably don't really need to discuss this too much but I, I, I noticed this um, this is do you remember the bank term funding program that uh, that kicked off when Silicon Valley Bank the Silicon Valley Bank yeah. collapsed that, in- that feels like two years ago almost yeah, it was only back in uh, March, right? Yeah. So, so this was the um, the bank term funding program that kicked off uh, when that happened. And as you can see, it is still quite. It's it's maintained at a high level for the past you know six months or so, which indicates there's still a, a decent level of demand. I think the mm-hmm. the um, outstanding balance is about 100, 108 billion. Uh, so there's still a decent demand for these emergency or um, Lending that no other uh, no other private sector lender is 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 going to do uh, is going to make, and to be clear, this is not free money from the Fed. These this is lending at um, at high rates of interest yeah. in order to keep keep these banks uh, keep these banks afloat. So that's that was an in- interesting take. Um, but the other, the main thing I wanted to point out was that, and Lacey pointed this out in his uh, essay last week, is that bank credit in the U.S. has has yeah. dipped into negative territory now. In the past twenty years, that's only happened um, in the in the aftermath of the uh, the GFC. So this, to me, this is a you know a sign that the the money flowing through the U.S. economy it is almost all deficit spending. The private sector is not creating debt anymore through um, through credit creation. Um, so that's a that's a big indicator that you know the the U.S. economy. Has slowed very sharply, gone from these strong rates of credit creation down into into negative, and just on the uh, on the on the same uh, token as that, this is the balance sheet of the uh, the Federal Reserve, uh, and that is in negative territory and and going down as well. Again, that very rarely happens. Uh, it happened in two thousand and twenty as the Fed was trying to tighten. Um, and many people say that the U.S. economy was looking like it could have going into recessionary conditions before COVID hit. So, mm-hmm. um, and as you might remember, I think it was in 2018, uh, the Fed had to turn 
pretty quickly and say, look, we're abandoning this uh, normalization of interest rate policy because it's uh, it's having a, a nasty effect. And that's why that turned that around before COVID even hit. Um, dipped down a little bit there, which didn't, didn't cause, a re- cause a recession, but didn't even dip um, in 2008. And to be fair, that was before the Fed become hugely uh, involved in trying to prop the economy up. Um, it all happened after that. But this this is a pretty pretty steep fall. Uh, that combined with the private sector not creating credit um, is just a bit of an indication that, you know, there are, uh, there are problems coming to the US economy. So just before, while I'm on this screen, Kirill, let's just go through um, uh, a couple of other charts that I've got here. So yep. this is the death knell to my uh, <laughs> to my bullish bond call. This is Barron saying uh, time to buy bonds. So thanks, Barron's. Um, it's pretty definitive. No yeah, it is. And look, you know, every now and then these magazine covers are right. <laughs> so hopefully, um, hopefully they've got this one right. And and out of all of them, I would say Barron's is probably uh, the most yes, esteemed. <laughs> In terms of its uh, its financial journalism, uh, its reporting, um, so let's hope Barron's has got this one right. But this did when I first saw this. I think I can't remember where I first saw it. When I did first saw it, it gave me a little bit of a uh, like a kick in the guts. I thought, uh, yeah, well, there goes my uh, my, my bullish bond buy because I have been adding bonds to uh, to my superannuation portfolio, for example. Um, so I just resigned myself to being wrong on that for another good couple of months. Um, so moving on, I got a couple of sentiment indicators. So this goes back to what we were talking about earlier with the, uh, the Aussie market and the U S market. We're at a stage where we're bouncing now, but not necessarily at a low, um, fear and greed index, which I often, uh, look at. It's just at the fear level, which is, you know, nothing telling us that it's at an extreme low. Uh, and this is a a combined sentiment index uh, for um, I think this is called the uh, American Association uh, of Investors um, something I can't remember mm-hmm. the, what the other I stands for plus the U.S. Investors Intelligence Survey. So this is a combined survey. Bulls minus the bears obviously rallied quite high into this July market high. Uh, it's come back a little bit since then. But it's nowhere near um, those lows that we saw in 2022. So from a sentiment perspective, we're not at that washout slash capitulation low level, um, which I think is important to consider when you're looking at uh, short-term lows versus longer-term lows. Um, And to just reiterate those uh, couple of things I look at, I look at some of these internals uh, in, in the Aussie market. So we've seen a pickup. This is the RSI indicator. Um, so stocks in oversold levels, this has picked up uh, quite high. So this is when you get to these levels, it suggests you're going to get at least a short-term bounce. Um, and that's what we're seeing at the moment. But we're not at capitulation levels that we saw back in June 2022. Uh, and I guess to a lesser extent, um, September 2022. Uh, so that is indicative of short-term lows, but not necessarily long-term lows. And then I combine that with things like um, the amount of or the number of ASX 200 stocks that are within 20% of their 52-week high. Mm-hmm. So that is starting to come down. 
So roughly 50% of stocks are in what I would call a definition of a bull market and 50% in a definition of a bear market, which means they're more than 20% from their recent highs. Uh, At these lows last year, which is June of 2022 and September 2022, um, you had nearly 75% of stocks were in bear market. So we're we're sort of getting there Mm -hmm. uh, and we might see this uh, bounce up in the next couple of weeks as the market clears that oversold condition, but we're not at a at a capitulation level. And uh, just the other one I wanted to show you uh, is the Aussie VIX index or the VIX for the S and P, uh, the ASX 200. It did spike up there uh, to a to a multi month high, but we're certainly not again at those sort of panic levels that we we saw back in mm-hmm. June 2022 uh, or even uh, September 2022 when the when the market put in yeah. a a more lasting low. So yeah, just a couple of things to keep in mind to suggest that this is a a bounce, not necessarily a, a long-term bottom. Um, but in saying that, there's always plenty of stocks that are not following what the index is doing. And as I said, I've been uh, buying some uh, smashed up uh, REITs and things like that. Um, not with the expectation they're going to bottom and, and turn around next month, but I think there's a lot of stocks out there that are trading well below intrinsic value uh, and their yields are quite attractive as well. So you might not necessarily get the the uh, capital gain in the short term, but while you're waiting for the, the bear market to play out, uh, you're going to get a decent income stream uh, in the meantime. So that's my, my short-term strategy. Of course, you know, holding gold uh, stocks and uh, energy stocks provide a decent hedge. Uh, and when the other stocks do uh, perform when they're sort of bouncing from their oversold conditions, gold might sell off. So having that combination of, uh, of stocks provides a lot of, um, a lot more stability to the portfolio, which I, I find comforting. Nice. And I think before, before we wrap up, you sort of mentioned um, potential panic and you mentioned before also that uh, the market is a bit, is 50-50 on whether the Reserve Bank is going to raise rates. If it does raise rates next week, Will will the market panic, or should it panic? I don't think it'll panic. I think it'll adjust. Um, there'll be an adjustment lower. Um, maybe bond yields will will pick up again. But I think often uh, it's it's interesting to watch what the longer term bond yield does because if the market says, "Hang on, you are raising rates too much," you might actually see a rally in long term bond yields because the market says this is actually going to slow the economy. This is, yeah. um, you know. This is going to hurt. This is starting to, you know, get to a point where it's um, it's hurting. If that does happen, uh, you could see uh, you could see the market fall. I wouldn't say necessarily say significantly because we're at fifty fifty. So I think the market is in in many ways effectively half expecting a rate rise, um, but it's certainly not going to be bullish, Kirill. I'll tell you that. Well, whether or not it will be bullish or not, we'll be here to report it and make commentary. So. Greg, it was nice to be back and uh, look forward to next week. Good to see you, Kirill. And uh, thanks for getting back in the hosting chair, mate. Appreciate it. That's all right. (laughs) And thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you again next week.